Assuming that companies now kind of have, have clarity on business model, they know what they're trying to do, they know what has to be done in order to succeed in this market, the challenge now is how the hell do they achieve that? You're listening to FIP Insider, the podcast that gives you the insight on current trends and future tech in media. Hello and welcome to episode two of FIP Insider Podcast. I'm Charlotte Ricker. And I'm Ashley Norris. Hopefully you have already listened to episode one. It's a must listen. It is a must listen, Ashley. Thank you very much. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I made some predictions a long time ago, which turned out to be not entirely accurate. So I was guessing the future of publishing uh, or the media rather and got it absolutely wrong. So this time, what we're going to do this time then? Well, we're looking ahead, Ashley, and we're going to get some experts in. So there's no need. Good job. No concern for error. No no errors are going to be made. Excellent. Yeah, we've got a really, really good lineup. Ashley, can you tell us more? Okay, so what I thought we'd do this time is look at the three key areas of shaping the media. So that's technology, that's kind of business and finance, and then that is also culture. So representing the technology strand, we have Soren Carlson. So he is from United Robots, Scandinavian company, and they build robots, which is your worst nightmare, Charlotte. Well, yeah, they replace ju- journalists. They, yeah, they journalists produce nightmare. content. They work all day long. They have no toilet breaks. You know, they don't moan. Zero contract hours. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to be talking to him, and he's going to hopefully reassure us that um, the the robots he's working with are actually complementary to the kind of media and to yes. the life of journalists, rather, rather than, than replacing us. Exactly. In we we hope so. Yes. And then also we've got two people who are going to talk about. Um, um, the business side of the future of uh, the media. So firstly, Mark Maddox, who is working for a media accelerator called Vida Media, who's got some interesting ideas about how smaller companies can then kind of grow their businesses and what the kind of future of the kind of um, the future of media startups looks like. Mm-hmm. And then we speak to Lucy Kung, who is uh, a very well-known and respected expert authority on digital media. And she's going to explain um, what's happened at the other end of the spectrum with um, with um, venture-backed media. Yeah. So companies like Vice Media, yeah. BuzzFeed, what's kind of happened to them in the last few years and where they might now be going. Because in many ways, some of them are having to look at pivoting their business models, moving away from one type of content to another. I won't say any more, I'll let her explain when, when we speak. And the last person we speak to is Rachel Arthur from Boom Saloon. Joe, Rachel? Well, also, not just Boom Saloon, one of the FIP Rising Star award winners. Absolutely. And she's going to be talking a bit about culture and specifically how the culture of the younger millennials and Generation Z is shaping media. And it's very interesting in that some of the things they're interested in are perhaps not the kind of things that you would expect them to be. Yes, and what's interesting particularly is the fact that she is at the moment print only, not digitised in any way, and then total contrast, we've got AI with United Robots, and that's what we're going to kick off with. Let's find out if AI really is killing journalism, and I really hope it's not actually, and we'll talk again at the end. So one of the key ways that the media is going to be impacted in the next decade is inevitably going to be technology. And one person who knows an awful lot about this is Soren Carlson. He's the CEO and founder of United Robots. Sounds obviously 
like a company that are producing robots that make copy is is that what exact the kind of thing that you do yeah you might say that uh, that's where we started out four years ago when we founded the company uh, then we were just fascinated uh, that it was possible to build uh, a machine that I could actually produce uh, publishable text from data and uh, now we would like to see ourselves a little bit more like some kind of um, automation uh, partner for uh, newsrooms or um, and media uh, when we we can automate not only the creation of of plain text but also uh, a good part of the work workflow that the newsroom has to has to perform every night. What are the kind of key problem you're solving? I mean, what what are media companies kind of asking you to do? Well, uh, th- the main problem uh, why we started the company and why we thought this would get traction it was the the plain fact that uh, the newsrooms I've been working in and my colleagues that I was talking to they were experiencing uh, cut after cut of the newsroom stuff they had less and less uh, time to to cover everything mm-hmm. local what has to, had to give way was the the super local material the one the material that uh, traditionally, I think has um, has tied uh, a community together. Uh, the small news on the ground, close to where you live. It's not not being done anymore. It's deadly dangerous for a local media house to to get mm-hmm. detached from from the the really really granular fabric of what is happening in a community. And we can help help news media to um, uh, get that back. Okay, so how automated is automated, though? Because I'm sure there has to still be some kind of human interaction. We publish thousands of, or we send thousands of stories for publishing every day uh, to Swedish and Norwegian, mostly news companies. Um, Nothing of that is ever moderated by the publisher. So in that way, for the newsroom, it is totally automated. Okay. Uh, And we do not... Uh, use any humans in the creation of the texts. Of course, humans are involved setting up the robot, but uh-huh. when it's while it's up and running, it's full automatic, um, no humans involved at all. Okay, so I mean, in terms of what the limits of automated content might be at the moment, say, um, you know, it's just good for, I guess, I mean, potentially very data heavy stories. So things like your football. You mentioned state agents and house price listings, but also, I guess, financial news as well. But I mean, how how much farther do you think automated content can go? So if we look in five years in the future, you know, are there other areas? I mean, I guess the, the question is, the classic is, you know, as a journalist, uh, you know, I'm obviously quite concerned that I might at some point be replaced by artificial intelligence even. So should I be worried? I don't think so, no. I don't think so. Uh, if anything uh, should make a journalist worried, it's not automated content. It's, um, it's uh, their, their employer's uh, lack of investment in technology because uh, what's going to eventually kill some, kill some uh, journalistic jobs, it's, uh, it's not technology. The technology enables and helps journalists in newsrooms. From from my perspective, it we are very 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 far from from creating robots that are actually write freely writing news articles about anything. Uh, we're still in a in a phase mm. where we are really really dependent on preferably structured data that can tell a story. We can analyze that data. We can 
we can put that analysis into words uh, with a language platform. Um, but that's that's pretty much a, a rules-based process uh, with algorithms. It has not not very much to do with with um, machine learning, uh, and uh, the reason for that is that we, if we are going to have publishers, you know, legacy publishers as our customers, we need to be able to promise them control. Mm. Uh, they can't. They they would never never buy um, uh, mm. uh, apply a rob a robot uh, that could produce pretty much anything they uh, the robot ha- felt for. It's um, it's a crazy idea. You would never allow that <laughs> with a reporter. So you don't allow it with a robot. Mm. So we need to we need to assure our customers that what we promise that this this machine will will um, write and publish on your news site. It's going to be exactly this. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. And you have the control. Uh, otherwise, I don't think, I don't see how it would work otherwise. Okay, and where do you think, um, where do you think United Robots will be going next? I mean, you know, is there, what is the kind of vision for the next, you know, two or three years? Well, uh, we have, uh, we have noticed uh, that we have uh, lots of traction in Scandinavia. Uh, we have almost all the local news, newspapers in, in, uh, in the Nordic countries as customers, and we, we are working closely with Shipstat, uh, which is a, a forward-looking publisher that many, many uh, publishing houses are watching closely. Yes, we're looking to expand into to mm. uh, some, uh, continental Europe, US, and the UK. We have customers there already, but that's of course uh, it's a given for us to try to get more customers there. We also think that we are going to build more verticals, more ca- more types of of um, uh, automatic content. Uh, whenever there's data, we can analyze that and, mm-hmm. and uh, turn it into text that, that can uh, be published. But we also uh, are, are experiencing that we can create much more value for, for our customers if we automate much of the process from creating the text and then adding pictures, adding video, adding graph, graphs, graphics, uh, and so on. And then do the packaging of this of this stuff for the for the newsroom and publish uh, that package into uh, to their CMSs and and uh, and, and on- online as well The uh, next person I've got to speak to is is Mark Maddox. So Mark is the uh, founder of, of Vida Media. Mark, do you want to just give us a bit of background on Vida, how it came about, and, and what you see as the opportunities for for a, a group like yourselves? Yeah, so Vida is um, we're a, a specialist startup studio and content studio, um, uh, very much specialising on on helping build what we call next generation of, of media brands. Um, the reason we set the business up was we looked at the investment landscape uh, and obviously there's a, a vast amount of accelerators and incubators for the tech space, um, but there doesn't seem to be too much out there for the media space, uh, especially when you're looking at the, uh, the sort of publishing and, and content side of things. Uh, hence, we set Vida up uh, in 2018 uh, to help early stage uh, content businesses get off the ground, find funding, and, and we help them grow as well. You know, what, why do you think there, there isn't more funding or there doesn't seem to be more funding available for media companies? 
I, I think there's a, there's a number of issues at play here. One, there's a certain valuation metric around tech businesses and, and software businesses and their ability to scale. So therefore, the, the uh, seed investment uh, community is very keen to invest in startups, early, early stage startups. And then, uh, of course, there's a hierarchy of, of, you know, next stage investment right up to VT to, to enable these businesses to scale, um, you know, searching for that unicorn. And, and I don't think we're ever going to see a, a media business become a unicorn uh, in the 21st or early stage 21st century. Um, another side as well, I guess, in the, the corporate side of things, uh, a lot of the corporates uh, have been fighting, um, you know, the, their digital transformation, their digital turnaround. So they've perhaps been more about uh, consolidating their existing businesses and making sure that their balance sheets are strong rather than looking at uh, investing mm. in, in startups uh, uh, for their own businesses. So uh, earlier on, you um, used the term next generation media uh, as to, to kind of describe the companies you want to invest in. What exactly do you mean by that? I mean, we, we, we try and break it down into a, a number of different areas. And, and a, you know, a business that we get involved in doesn't have to operate in all of these different, different strands. But, but we, we, we look at the, the entrepreneur who started the business or the creators and, and we look at how the business is operating. And, and ideally, you know, we want the business to be disruptive. We want it to be doing exciting new things. Um, it's imperative that it's multi-platform. It, it, you know, we, we need uh, any business that we're involved in to be making the best use of social channels in order to drive uh, audiences and potential revenues to their own channels. We, we, we need to have them looking at diverse revenues. Obviously, all, all uh, the legacy publishing and media businesses are looking to diversify their revenue streams. And the great thing about these startup businesses is... Um, you know, they're doing that from the get-go through, through necessity. They have to earn money in different ways because mm. the media's not there. They can't get uh, ad revenue in uh, at the same scale as they perhaps used to because they're a, a niche operator. And by plugging into uh, a, a, a any of the programmatic networks, you, you know, they're just not going to see any return, return on uh, uh, investment in their audiences. Um, and when it comes to their audiences, it, it, it's got to be key that it's a niche audience, it's an underserved audience, and, and very much that audience and that community is, is, is going to grow. What, what do you think kind of media companies now in 2020 are looking for? I think we've had a decade of them looking at very much focusing on digital transformation and technology. But do you now think it's almost now that the, now the turn is to come back to of niche media and of these niche media entities that they're going to be then be focusing on buying and building in the future? I hope so. Obviously, you know, I hope so for our you know growing roster of um, you know startup media brands. Um, you've you've got to consider that. Um, you know, we're, you know, 25, 30 years into, you know, digital media. Um, and this next generation of startups are creating relationships with, um, with, with audiences in, in, you know, in very new, exciting ways, very multi-platform ways. Um, and you've got to think that uh, the... Uh, 
consolidation in the marketplace at the moment with the big publishers that have still got Mm. big magazine interests have got to be looking at where there are niche uh, audiences that they can aggregate together that might bring in um, talent in terms of uh, you know new ways of uh, commercializing business models uh, new publishing skills uh, new ways of building audiences uh, so all of all of the the, the, the publishers we, we work with in the, within the startups you know they're, they're very agile very much um, capable of understanding data to create a story to create content publish the content and then you know if necessarily even put you know paid media behind that obviously you know that that's quite a a new fast way of publishing sure. if we look back sort of seven or eight years ago now we, we we saw some fairly significant vc investments in the media i mean the two obvious examples are obviously vice media and buzzfeed um and yeah, they took a lot of money and they grew very, very quickly. And then I think both of them initially were very predicated on programmatic advertising. And that was how they're making the majority of their cash. And then there's been a realignment since. Um, I just kind of wonder how you see the future for, for those two media companies and the others that kind of play in that space. Bearing in mind two things, you know, firstly, we're not seeing the same level of traffic coming from social or as you make the point, you know, we, some of that now is having to become from, from paid social. And secondly, you know, they were very millennial focused and we've got a, a new generation, generation Z coming through, which seem to have different values and different expectations from, um, from, from, from millennials. So, so what do you think the future is then for, for Buzzfeed, Vice Media and, and that kind of wave of um, digital companies? It's a great question, big question. I, I think the the immediate challenge for the the, the you know the big publishers that uh, big digital media businesses that, that took on uh, lots of investment at significant significant valuations is um, you know they were very much valued as tech businesses. You know they were wrapping data and CMS or yeah, content management system technology into their valuations in order to mm. justify, um, you know, Silicon Valley type valuations. And the challenge for them now is who do they sell to? Who who would be able to afford them? Who would want to buy them? Um, you know, it's unlikely to be a big broadcaster. It's unlikely to be a big international publisher group or news group. I guess. The, the challenge for a BuzzFeed or Vice, I mean, especially a Vice when you're talking about the millennial generation, is they've got to reinvent themselves. They have got to probably become a, a mobile-first mm. business, a social-first business, uh, and they've probably got to diversify their revenue streams even further than they have. When you talk about the Gen Z audience coming through, it's very interesting to see they are very social first they are very mobile first we're watching the pace of change speed up um, uh, with tiktok coming through Um, we're seeing the proliferation of brands getting faster and faster with these sort of direct to consumer brands media is fragmenting more and more and more and um, you know unfortunately that means a lot of the power it is obviously sitting with with Facebook. You know, we'll be sitting with TikTok. Um, you know, still with Twitter, Pinterest, etc. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how um, 
how publishers react to that um, and, and how these, you know, uh, what some people call bonsai brands, these small brands that are almost uh, publishers are in their own right, uh, you know, how they grow as something like uh, Instagram becomes more and more expensive to grow your brand. You know, we have a, a, an old school publishing company in the UK, Future Publishing or Future PLC, you know, which, you know, I know very well through having worked for virtually every time. And, and what they're doing kind of fits what, you're talking about in terms of next generation media models they've taken you know their existing brands shattered some of them and you know turned them on their heads and and now they're left with these interesting but multi-platform um, diverse red revenue media brands and yet you know obviously we've seen they're doing extremely well at the moment so i mean do you think that's because of you know, they've taken that approach or what what do you think special about them Special is a good word. I think they've, they've gone after the special interest market, the niche market, and they've been quite happy to do that. And I think uh, I, I remember that, that uh, Future were always, you know, joked, joked about by London publishers as being the, the sort of niche guys that, that uh, based in Bath. They, they, they have uh, pursued a, 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 a very strong strategy. And uh, as you said, they, they've thought about the areas they've operated in. They've, you know, they, they've streamlined their technology. They're working on multiple platforms. They're, they've really thought about where they, they develop their, uh, their, their different revenue streams. And also, you know, we, we talked about uh, some of the U.S., Valuations and tech valuations, and and how these businesses are valued. Future have done incredibly well with their share price over the last two years. Um, it, it's grown significantly. Dipped recently, um, but that you know could be down just to, to to the market trends. Obviously, they're they're looking to um, incorporate TI into the business, which will make them um, the biggest publisher in in Europe. What's interesting to see is you know how they continue their digital march and and if they can keep growing and if they can create a, a, an element of scale uh, then you know they become a, a serious competitor to you know some of the big tech te you know platforms uh, and some of those big buzz feeds and, and and so on The next guest we have is Lucy Kung, who is an academic and a strategic advisor. She's also a, a fairly prolific author, and five years ago, she wrote a book called Innovators in Digital News, which looked um, fairly broadly, I guess, uh, who, which of the kind of the, the players in the kind of news media industry were, were re responding fastest to um, digital and web websites and social media, and, and who was like to be the, the winners and, and the losers of, of that kind of shakeup. And Lucy, one of the things you talked about quite a lot in that book, you focused on the venture back. Um, venture-backed companies like, for example, Vice Media and BuzzFeed and Mike, and they, you know there are others as well. And and you were very complimentary, I guess, at the time in terms of the fact that you thought that you know they'd they they'd been very fast to move, but they'd also produced really robust business plans. So, how do you think the last five years has gone for that kind of particular group of, of media? Okay, well, it hasn't gone well, clearly. Um, in fact, these, this group of organizations is now strangely part of the kind of legacy firmament. You know, the noise that was happening around them is now very much, I think, happening around the podcast space. 
around the kind of streamed entertainment space. I mean, the problem, of course, is that they were, they are based on the distributed model. And therefore, they are exactly as vulnerable to Facebook and Google as the rest of the legacy news sector. Um, and they're finding it as hard to battle in that environment as the more established newspapers are. Um, they're desperately seeking revenues. They're experimenting with their business model. Um, and they're less nimble than they were. I mean, we used to kind of prize the fact they could pivot. But weirdly, I mean... Vox, I think, is an outlier here, but, you know, they kind of pivoted very heavily to video, but a lot of them have not managed to kind of pivot to podcasting, which is probably where the action is right now. So I think even though actually, interestingly, these companies are probably successes from the perspective of legacy media players, they would probably love to have the amount of traffic that these players do. Mm. They have not, I would imagine, met the expectations of their VC backers. And, you know, has some of that been down to the kind of slightly more disappointing figures for programmatic advertising uh, in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it's, it's down to challenges around the distributed model. Yeah. Do you say they've been slow to look at alternative uh, revenue sources? No, I think it's just that their entire kind of edifices are erected on one model. So, I mean, I think, I think BuzzFeed has moved really fast into merchandising, into licensed content, into working with Netflix into, I mean, all kinds of areas. It's just, you know, they're based on scale. It's very hard to yeah. scale those activities fast. Mm. It's, and if you're based on scale, then actually things like events get very tricky because events is very localized. So I think the problem is they put their eggs very much in one basket. How do you think that they could go about regaining momentum? And, and, and also, do you think that they have an issue with the fact that their audience tended to be very kind of uh, millennial focused and you've got a, a new generation kind of coming through and Jen said that have slightly different preoccupations and interests. I worry less about that actually because I think the one of the assets those companies have is is how tightly they are connected to audiences. You know, their data engines are really, really good. So I would tend to trust their ability to keep in to to move in step with changing consumer attitudes, needs, and wants. I think it's a real challenge. I mean, I you know, if you think the first thing to remember about these companies is they're privately held, mm -hmm. so we really don't know actually how they're doing. We're kind of reading the runes, um, but clearly it's not a growth story. I mean, Mike has essentially been wound up. Small parts gone to bustle. Vice. Mm -hmm cutting its headcount, retrenching, shutting offices and so on. Refinery29 let, let go 10% of its headcount head or so in 2018. BuzzFeed is clearly scrambling for income. Uh, Jonas Peretti is making really intelligent suggestions about how the industry should shape up, but he's not going to be able to orchestrate all of that. Loss of Ben Smith, I think, is highly symbolic. So I think, I think essentially, they're not in a gross place. And, it, and I think we also have to think about their backers. And for their backers' perspective, I would imagine they're also looking for exits. So I, mm -hmm. I, think, I think there's going to be a kind of very mixed pic picture of what happens to these organizations. And I think the problem is the big money in the industry in terms of acquirers is moving very much into the kind of streaming space and the podcast space. I'm not sure how attractive these players look. I mean, if you look also at their big assets, which say for BuzzFeed, it's their amazing data analytics, data analytics engine and the way that's kind of synced into their content creation engine. 
some of the really good media companies that have built that for themselves or are building it for yeah. themselves. So I think it's I think it's very tricky to work out what's going to happen. But I think we're we're looking at a kind of like patchwork of moves, closing down. Um, parts of the businesses being acquired and so on. So it sounds like it's going to be the interesting few years for them. Um, more generally then, what do you think we should be uppermost in the minds of um, media company management? I mean, you've, you've obviously written books about strategy and culture around media. Um, you know, do you think that some of the issues they were dealing with five years ago have kind of been resolved now? Or, you know, are, are things like, uh, you know, the transitioning of millennials into management and, and kind of um, changing culture of, of, of companies, is, is that still ongoing? Or where do you think that's going to go? Okay, I think, I think for the news sector, the ex-newspapers, I think things are slightly clearer. I think we're, going, we're beginning to crystallise around a kind of business model consensus, which seems to be subscription, plus a bouquet of other revenue-generating activities. So you turn, try and set up a kind of virtual circle of you know, digital content plus uh, podcasts plus events and, and so on. So I think that's kind of emerging. I think the other thing we're seeing is there's a leader group internationally really pulling ahead. Um, the Axel Springers, the Shipsteads, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they're really moving ahead very fast, I think. And I think that is a concern for the smaller players. So I think that is kind of establishing itself. I think in terms of given that, assuming that companies now kind of have, have clarity on business model, they know what they're trying to do. They know what has to be done in order to succeed in this market. The challenge now is how the hell do they achieve that? And I think mm. therefore what I'm seeing, and this is what I'm focusing all my kind of current research on, the next report is on, is actually how you kind of align the organization around that new strategy. And actually it requires really profound shifts in, in how you lead, in the kind of cultural assumptions that govern how the organizations work. Um, the whole issue about young employees having an entirely different mindset and set of expectations is really, really important. Diversity, inclusion, talent. I mean, there, there's some really nitty gritty care that needs to be given to the core of the organization in order to deliver on, on these new business model expectations. Mm -hmm. And one last question then, in terms of best practice, you know, you, you mentioned a few, but I mean, do you want to focus on one who you think is actually innovating in this area at the moment? I'm really reluctant to kind of pull out one organization as, as behaving really well. I mean, I think what we are seeing is that in terms of culture, the big shift that needs to happen is away from a kind of parental approach to culture, which is the way a lot of people leading organizations, that's the assumption they grow up with. They're at the, when you get to the top, you tell people how to do things. I think there's more, it's a kind of shift towards a much more peer-to-peer -peer approach, a more inclusive mm. approach, and more trying to pull on the talents of the entire organization. But in order to do that, you've got to kind of equip the organization to think a little bit more broadly about the kind of existential threats facing the organization and to kind of enlist them to actually use more of their competence to actually help solve the organizational problem. So I think there's a really fundamental shift in terms of how everyone in the organization thinks about their role. But in order for that to happen, leaders have to be prepared to work much more collaboratively.
next guest is Rachel Arthur. She's the founder and editor of Boom Saloon. She also won last year, 2019, the FIP Rising Star Award. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Hi. Great to chat to you. Yeah, good to talk to you. So Boom Saloon then, what exactly is it and, and kind of what's your day-to-day role on it? Mm, so I am founder and editor. Um, as a publication, Boom Saloon is a print magazine with a pretty bold mission in that we are trying to democratise creativity for good. So how we do that is that we have an incredibly broad spectrum of contributors from students and people who have never been published before. Something we really push for is people who feel quite ostracised from the creative industries. So a lot of them personally feel like they don't have in quotation marks, the right kind of education or status. They don't come from the back, right background or they don't know the right people. And that's where we feel we can step up and say, literally none of that matters. If you are doing something creatively of merit, then we believe that should be recognised and showcased on the same page as the people who are considered to be the experts and the leaders. So it's a lot about democratising the industry, breaking down these barriers and creating a level playing field. Um, our content is very much evergreen. We still have people who buy our first issue um, we're big champions of long form really beautiful photographic essays over multiple pages we really like to give people the space for their work to breathe and really shine um, we look a lot about how the arts and creative industries interplay with the likes of culture psychology economics so going much deeper than um, you know what could occasionally be considered on the surface um, we don't run any advertising and that doesn't always work with our model which is something I can speak about at length. Um, but uh-huh. yeah, in a nutshell, that, that is what we do. We're incredibly lucky to work with amazing talents from all around the world. Um, sure. Yeah, it's a real honour to print their work. So, so bear in mind you won Fit Rising Star. I, I'll assume that you're a certain age. Then what was the attraction for you of print? Because, I mean, basically, obviously, I'm guessing when you were a teenager, print was almost getting to that point where it was starting to decline and everybody and idiots like me were just banging on about how digital is the future and that no one's going to read print. So what kind of pulled you, <laughs> pulled you into it? Yeah, I mean, I, throughout the entirety of the time I've been in this career, people have told me that print mm. is dead. Um, and I, I obviously accept that the industry as a whole has changed. Um, but I think sometimes you need to have the resolve to pin your colours to the mast and stand by something that you believe in, which is exactly what we have done. Um, I think things can be very much cyclical as well. And, you know, I, I actually left a role working for a tech startup to start a print magazine. And you can probably imagine the conversations that went down around that. Um, that would be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, but, you know, A, I had the bug and also thinking of this cyclical way of things working. I think we definitely reached a point where, you know, people almost reached a digital saturation and there was mm. this need to get some of your life back and not always be attached to a screen at all times. Um, I think it's it's a really nice thing that you can do for yourself, especially as as a society we become more self-aware to, you know, take the time to have this object which is a part of your life which you can take time out to read and enjoy and turn the page and mm-hmm. feel the paper and smell the ink. Um, I think it becomes much more of an experience which is full and very much a part of your life in the way that something that's on a screen and then gone potentially cannot do. Um, so we will always stand by being print first for a number of reasons. I also think when we have 
the honour of working with such amazing contributors. It does them justice to put their work into this really beautiful, tangible publication. Um, so there are mm-hmm. a number of reasons why, why we stand for print. Um, but yeah, they're some of the main ones. But do you do digital content as well? We don't. Um, no, we're purely print first. There are a number of things that we're looking to do in the next year digitally. Um, and when I moved into this space, I moved into it highly aware of the importance of digital and that will never mm-hmm. leave me. And I think it has so much scope and it will always need to run alongside everything that we do in the printed realm. Um, and mm-hmm. I will never you know, overlook that or underestimate that. Um, but I think you can accept and appreciate the place for both of those and they can coexist. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of things that we want to do digitally, which will be really exciting. And also as an incredibly small team based in Scotland, um, we work with communities all around the world. Our contributors are now so widespread and that would mm. not have been possible without digital. Um, so mm. it's very much been interwoven into our fabric from day one in spite of the fact we're print first. And I think that's probably where, you know, the future lies for a lot of print publications. So in terms of monetization, then, mm-hmm. uh, is it just purely the, the print price or are there, are there other ways you make revenue? We have multiple different revenue streams. Um, again, when I started in this space, I think that was one of the biggest things I accepted. If you are a small independent publication, especially one who doesn't run advertising, to survive, you need to have those multiple nev- revenue streams. You need to be nimble. You need to be agile. Um We can't rely on the huge advertising budgets that global media organizations have, so we need to approach it in a different way. Um, It actually took a long time to refine the business model to what it is now, because we have essentially three elements to it. We have our printed publication, which directly supports a series of community projects alongside our creative studio. Um, So two of those are main revenue drivers for the third, which is the projects. But over and above that, we also run a series of events we run artist collaborations um, we're always thinking of different sponsorship type offerings that we can move to um, which I think is and always will be vital in this space yeah I mean it's interesting because I think you know some of the more mainstream media companies and I know you're at Congress this year have kind of moved towards that as a revenue model as well do you think you know you you and the kind of generation of people who developed these print print magazines over the last five or six years have influenced them or was that going to happen organically I mean I would love to think that we have influenced them I I don't know um I think it's as an industry we are strongest when everyone is in contact and learning and growing from each other um I can't say, you know, from behind closed doors whether that's what the big guys are doing or not. Maybe they're coming to their own conclusions, but as much as we would like to learn from them, I would hope that they would want to learn from the little guys as well. Um, I think that will always only work to a certain degree, you know, with limited time, resource budgets. There are things we will never be able to do, which massive media organizations will. Equally, like I said earlier, with us being agile and nimble, we can pivot much more quickly than they potentially can um so i think it's it's a two-pronged attack attack of um recognizing the opportunities whilst also staying true to yourself Mm -hmm. and who would you say is your kind of media inspiration i mean are there other smaller print titles that you know have inspired you or was it mainstream media oh god no it's 
totally across the board from all different levels. Um, I am very lucky to be based in Edinburgh where there are a number of really, really interesting independent publications cropping up. Um, we have really nice relationships with all of those. Um, one of the things which is core to everything that we believe in is that the industry will be strengthened if we're all in it together. So we really push for that to be of great importance to us. Um, but then I've learned a lot from bigger publications as well. Um, I think there's some really interesting things happening around solutions journalism at the moment, positive news, which is really exciting for me personally, but as an industry, I hope will drive us forward in a really nice direction. Um, and again, that's spearheaded across the entire spectrum of your little indies right up to your massive organizations. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of insights from across the board. And, uh, you know, it seems to be that, you know, we've got Generation Z coming through now um, who seem to be, if we're caricaturing and stereotyping, which is a terrible thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. They seem to be more political and, you know, very much focused on things like climate change and, and identity politics, maybe more than millennials. I mean, do you think that's going to shape the media kind of in your direction anyway, in terms of the type of content you're producing in that, you know, that's just going to increase demand? I would really hope so. Um, I think, I mean, <laughs> people who know me will attest to the fact I could wax lyrical about the changing role of the media in our society. But I think, you know, we've gone from such a position of that being a privilege and an honour and, you know, you reported the facts and you were looked to as this beacon of truth and respect. And obviously that is still a tenant of the media industry today. But I also think there's this new wave of, I mean, I... I don't want to be too over the top with terms like fake news, um, but there's definitely been a swing. And even in terms of the type of content that's reported and the repercussions of that, I really hope that the next generation can push for a positive change in the industry. And if there is a need and a want for a discussion around those kind of topics, then I hope as an industry we can fill that because um, I think it's an incredibly important facet of our role so yeah I'm hopeful. How, how big do you want Boom Saloon to be? I mean you know do you have a picture of what where you'd be in five years time or ten years is something you expect to be doing a long time you know do, do, do you ever take stock and think or is it just you, you know you're, you're living from month to month or, and thinking about how things work in that way? Yeah, that's a really interesting one because I've always known the direction I want us to go in, but it has never been attached to growth. Um, I want us to be as big as we need to do to be to do the job that we want to do. Um, I don't feel like success is based on us having 10 employees, 20 employees. I, I don't really care about the numbers, to be honest, as long as we're fulfilling the missions that we set out to do. Um, I think that's of much more importance. Um, so, yeah, we've got big plans for the future, big plans for this year, um, which are all very exciting and equally daunting. Um, but I never really think of you know, the future in terms of, of numbers is more in terms of milestones. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. So, Charlotte, that was yes, a fascinating quartet of interviews, don't well, you think? You say so yourself. <laughs> I've learned loads. Is there something that you specifically you've 
been surprised by? Yeah, there were there were a number of things that I was surprised by. I think that one thing I really liked was what Lucy said about the big shift that needs to happen in publishing. And she's talking about moving away from this parental approach to the culture, which is basically you get to the top and then you dictate how things are done. And what uh-huh. she's saying is there needs to be a shift to a more inclusive approach. It has to be more peer-to-peer, which I really like. The whole idea of much more sort of um, a linear approach to uh, to media rather than from the top down. Uh, but she said that in order for that to happen, the le- leaders have got to work more collaboratively. I think, you know, if you are... You've got to listen to the younger people in your companies because they are invariably quite often the consumers of your content. So it does make so much sense. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. But also getting different voices in there as well. I mean, the media industry has in the past been very dominated by males. Um, There are more and more women there. But, you know, great to see people like groups like Gal Dem, you know, those kind of groups now coming a lot more people of colour in the industry. Um, I think it's going in the right direction. Yeah, it's shaking things up and it's making it much more interesting, which I think is fantastic. Another thing that struck me, and it was interesting that they, they were the first and the last interviews, were two very different ways of creating content. Mm. So you've got United Robots producing automated content and then there's Boom Saloon producing this carefully created, beautiful print magazine. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it's very, very different, but both working in their own way. Well, I think it just goes to underline the future of content creation is there's no one fit solution. It's going to be different consumers have different requirements and different media companies will have different ways of addressing those requirements. It also goes to show that if you produce high quality content, people will pay for it, which for me is music to my ears, Ashley. Yes, and um, we've been speaking to some people about that. We have indeed. We are going to discuss this in our next episode. We're going to be speaking to four startups who are trying to make it easier to monetize premium content. We are speaking to Jason Bay from Pico, Dominic Young from Axate, Tony Hale from Scroll, and Matthias Levac from Payread. And what's interesting about all of them uh, is they have very different approaches you know, again, there's a multi multiplicity of options for publishers yeah. and media companies, um, and they're coming out in very different ways. They are, and I think what what's great is it just for me as a journalist and as a as a I'm passionate about the media industry is it's all about quality content, and that's what I like to hear. Quality content, it's the future. It's the future. You heard it here first. <laughs> and, um, well, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to listen to episode three. Great.